0: All right, look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 3, I think it's on page 977 if you're following along in the Bible that's in the pew there in front of you, feel free to use that to help us a little bit with our context and just any time you see something like you see in verse 1 of chapter 3 for this reason, well what reason is Paul talking about? So I want to back up just a few verses to help us see the reason. Um, so I'm going to start in chapter 2 reading. Um, uh, let's go to verse 18. All right. Chapter 2, verse 18, leading into chapter 3. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, we really do need to dig deep, as Ben said. This is um, part of your word, Lord, that is... Um, deep, it's wide, it's in many ways completely unfathomable to us, apart from the insight and wisdom that your Holy Spirit gives us. So we pray for that. We pray for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, so that we can know what is the hope that we have in Christ, what are the glorious riches you have for us, Lord, in the saints, and what is that great power that is ours through Jesus. So we pray this in his name. Amen. I'm uh, one of these guys who, I really don't mind detours if if I'm not in a hurry, okay? I mean, I'm if I've got time, I like to just turn down roads and just see where they go. Uh, I've driven my family crazy over the years doing just that kind of thing. Let's see where this road goes. So a few years ago, Susan and I were out west, and we had flown into San Francisco, and our goal was to start there and drive up the west coast, to to the national parks that were along the edge there just to see the west coast. Uh, ultimately we were going to end up in Washington State, one of the national parks up there. And and we decided to take a little detour off of the route. We just were looking at the map and saw, I don't even remember how we thought about going to this place, but we saw this this park. We saw this little marking on the map up in Oregon. That was a detour off of our route and that detour took us to a national park called Crater Lake. And it was one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen in my life. This is a picture of it. And it's, it's just breathtaking. You're on this mountain and you see this, this lake that they say was created by this crater, this meteor. It's, it's an amazing thing to see. And what we have in Ephesians chapter 3 is an amazing detour. Alright? And I don't know if you picked up on it, but what Paul does in the first verse of chapter three. For this reason I Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And in the ESV and some other versions, there's a there's a dash there. Okay? Well, the translators have put that there so that we can recognize that what starts in verse two and goes all the way down through verse thirteen is a detour. Squirrel. <laughs> Paul does that sometimes. He'll be he'll be Teaching, he'll be talking, he'll be writing, and all of a sudden he goes and he darts off that way. But he's always darting off after God's glory. He's always captivated by some deep truth in the gospel. And and here in chapter three. He gets to verse 1, and and what they tell us, what what we understand from the way it's translated, is that it it would read very naturally, wouldn't it? For this reason, I fall a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now skip down to verse 14. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. So he's praying for the church. And we're going to get to that prayer next week, Lord willing. But all of a sudden, squirrel! He goes off on this, what we see here in verse 2. And it's an amazing detour. And so what, what I want to do as we work our way through this passage is, and I've, and I've seen a couple other commentators do this. This isn't original to me, but I want us to kind of stand on the mountaintop like we were looking at Crater Lake and, and work our way down, okay? So we're going to start down in verses 12 and 13. We're going to work our way backwards through the text. So we're really doing it the easy way. How many of you all have ever ridden? Your, gone up to the Creeper Trail and, and ridden the Creeper Trail. I know some of you have gone up there. Well, the cool thing about the Creeper Trail is it's all downhill, all right? You, you start and you just take your bike and you go downhill. Well, we're going to go downhill. Doesn't mean it's going to be an easy ride necessarily, but that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the top if you will, start with what we see here in this majesty, this mystery that culminates in verses 11 and 12. So what is God's plan for Westwood, all right? We used to use a little track lots of times. What is God's plan for your life? Well, God does have a plan for our lives. He has a plan for Westwood. He has a plan for all of his church, and I believe we find that in this passage. I think we see what God's plan is here in this passage. It begins with the gospel. It begins with the good news that we saw back at the beginning of chapter 2. Actually go all the way back to the beginning in chapter 1. Actually go all the way back before the foundation of the world. Where we were chosen in Christ before any of that was done. And then you work your way through to chapter 2 and you see that we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And by God's grace, by His mercy, those who were dead in trespasses and sins are made alive together with Christ. So it goes all the way back to the gospel. And this supernatural transformation is not something we deserve. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It's not anything any of us can boast in. It's simply His gift of grace to us. So we go all the way back to that. But it's more than just God saving individuals, okay? God saves us for a plan and for a purpose. And that includes taking all of those who are spiritually dead... All of those who are alienated from God and from each other and binding us together in a supernatural new humanity. That through the cross, the hostility through the blood of Christ, the hostility has been destroyed, the wall torn down, and we are made one in Christ. Those who were separated are now brought together. One new man, Paul says in 2.15. So then we're no longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer separated from God or each other. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're brought into His family. We're brought into His kingdom. We are brought into Christ together. Alright? So we go back to that. And that's the foundation of that. And this supernatural community is so contrary to our culture. It should be so contrary to what we see in the world that it cannot be explained on a linear level. Alright? You cannot understand it. It's humanly impossible. How do I know that? Because in just in the next verses that we see next week, Paul prays for us to begin to comprehend it and see it and recognize that it is impossible outside of Christ. And so that's the point here. This kind of love and unity that binds together those who were once separated and alien is something that causes the world to stand up and take notice. It also causes the unseen world to stand up and take notice. And what Paul tells us here is something that in a little book that that I have, I think there may be some out there in the bookstore, a little book called Compelling Community. Um, And this is what Mark Dever writes in that book. This is the ultimate purpose statement for community in the Ephesian church. This is the ultimate purpose statement for community in churches today. This is the ultimate purpose statement for Westwood. What is that purpose statement? Well, it's what we see here in the latter part of this passage in verse 11 and 12. In whom, he, he, he's talking about this, I'm sorry, 9 and 10, not 11 and 12. I'm looking too far down. So that through Christ, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is where it's going. That God would have, as I said last week, his own personal show and tell. And what is he showing? He's showing the church. And what is that telling? It's demonstrating God's manifold wisdom and glory. It's his masterpiece, if you will. Alright? And so that's where this is headed. It's the majesty of God's wisdom that's displayed in this plan. And Paul tells us that in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. So, now, now, wait a minute. You should think, wait just a second. Jason just read out of the Old Testament book of Isaiah that God was going to do a new thing, right? And all throughout the Old Testament, we have these pictures, if you will, these hints, these pointers, that something else was going to come. And we think about that, and we go, now wait a minute, how, how is it that it's new here, and it's just now being revealed, and yet, okay, what we need is what we've gained as we study the book of Revelation, and what we see when we study the book of Ephesians. And that is a different perspective, all right, that gets out of the linear and gets to the eternal. And so what we have here is this perspective that Paul gives us of a place and a time and a purpose that's that's beyond us here and now. What about that place? Well, that place is the heavenly places. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, "...Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Church, let's let's think eternally. All right, The heavenly places. Well, what about about the time? When are we talking about? Even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, we go all the way back to eternity past, looking forward to eternity to come. That's our perspective, church. It's not just here and now. Well, what about that purpose? Well, that purpose that He showed us back in chapter 1... According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this, this eternal purpose and perspective and place, all is seen in Christ. So just think about that for a second in this amazing picture of why we're here. I'm talking about us here at Westwood, this local church and every local church that's centered around God's word and founded in Christ. What is God's purpose for His people? Well, we've talked about that as a family. We're adopted in His family. We've talked about that as His body, with Him the head and us the parts. We've talked about that as as His building being built up into this spiritual dwelling place. We've talked about that as His kingdom and us being citizens in that kingdom. We're going to see later on in Ephesians, we are His beloved bride. In that covenant love relationship with Him. It's seen in the church. Here the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church. That's that ekklesia, that called out redeemed people. It's seen in the beauty and diversity of the church. Manifold is the word that's used only here in the New Testament. Peter talks about manifold grace, but that's a different word. Manifold here means variegated, all right? Or it means multifaceted. It means diverse in many ways. It's used to describe some uh, like a tapestry, all right? There's a little rug out there on the floor that I brought out of my office that. That came from Afghanistan, a little, little prayer rug, but that tapestry that goes into that, the weaving of all those different colors into that pattern, that's the idea behind this. And as we saw earlier in chapter 2, this is the demonstration of God's wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world. It's not that we have anything in common other than Christ. That's the picture that Jesus wants us to see. And it's the wisdom that we see in Christ, Paul says in Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's the wisdom that Paul prayed for back in chapter 1 that the Father of glory would give us insight into this wisdom. Do you see? It's spiritually discerned. It's spiritually given. It's a spiritual perspective that we have on what we do here. There is nothing insignificant that goes on in this place. Nothing you do in the church. Nothing you do in service to your king is insignificant. I remember saying that years ago. If you're caring for our children in extended care, bless you. May your tribe increase. And when you change that dirty, smelly diaper, there's eternal significance in that. I mean that. I've shared it in my personal testimony. Susan and I went back to the church where I eventually got saved simply because of the lady that received our son and loved him that day. That's what compelled me to go back to that church the way she took care of my children. There's nothing insignificant. And as we see God laying out this beautiful vision, Don Carson says this, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. Now I'll use that as an as application in a few minutes, but listen to what he says. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common ancestry, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. In this light, the church is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It's the visible bond of an invisible gospel. And it's the glory of the invisible God demonstrated visibly through His church. As God does in and through His church what can only be Attributed to his grace in Christ. That's that's what this church is. And this bond that binds diverse people together. And I understand, we talked about this, it's not diversity for diversity's sake. It's diversity built around Jesus, grounded in Christ. It's diversity that's unified in Christ. And while we may not be diverse in color, alright? And we pray to that end and we work to that end. We should reflect the makeup of our community, all right? And we, and we have diversity in our Hispanic brothers and sisters. There's some Hispanic, I mean, there's some diversity of color in that regard. But my point is not just simply diversity in color. It's Yeah, it's different colors, but it's different economics, it's different politics, it's different social structures, it's different social abilities. It's different cultural backgrounds. And we'll see next week that this is possible only through God's grace as we are grounded in the love that God has for us and we extend that love to others. Alright? There's, there's nothing, there's no formula, there's no way that we come together with some kind of plan and just queued it up based on human tendencies and possibilities. It's a supernatural community based on a supernatural gospel. And that's the picture that we have. It's just a demonstration of God's wisdom. Only he would think of it. All right? Now, this display that God is giving, who is it for? Well, notice that it says it's for these rulers. It's for these authorities in the heavenly places. It's the same phrase that's used later on in Ephesians 6.12 of the enemy. All right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against these rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers in this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So some commentators say because of that parallel that we're talking about bad angels here, okay? We're talking about God displaying his manifold wisdom through the church to his enemies. I kind of envision them caged up and watching this gospel drama unfold. And they try to hinder it, they try to tempt us, they try to dissuade us, but they cannot stop it. They cannot stop it. But I also think it includes good angels. Peter tells us that the angels are peering over, if you will, the guardrails of heaven into this amazing drama of the gospel that goes on around us. It is the angels that we saw back in Revelation chapter 5. This, this, this voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Those are those same angels who I believe are watching this. You know what's amazing? In the book of Job, we see that these sons of God, these angels, if you will, just shouted in celebration and praise as God created the world, but they've never seen anything like the church. They've never seen anything like it. Aliens and strangers and rebels, those who have spit in the face of God, being reconciled to Him by the blood of His one and only Son. I imagine some of them are just, got their mouths hanging open. What grace. What creativity. Who, Who would have thunk it, you know? Like, what is going on here? It's this amazing. And so they see this. So the church is the show and tell of God. I've mentioned that. It's the majesty and glory of God's wisdom being displayed. Well, why did we not see that coming? Well, notice what he says. Over and over and over in this passage. It's a mystery, he says in verse 3. Insight into the mystery of Christ, he says in verse 4. Verse 5, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Down in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of this mystery? So this mystery, and he mentioned it back in chapter 1. What is this mystery? It's It's 11 times we find that word in Ephesians and Colossians. In these two prison epistles of Paul. This mystery. Now it's not... Death on the Nile, okay? It's, It's not an Agatha Christie whodunit. It's not that kind of mystery. The mystery that we're talking about here, well, here's an illustration that I thought about this week. There was a man who was sitting there back in the late 1600s, and he saw an apple fall off a tree, and it hit the ground. And Sir Isaac Newton, that's legend as far as that part of it goes, but Sir Isaac Newton wondered why is it that something that's stationary all of a sudden begins to move downward? And he continued to think about it. Why, why, why do we stay in place or fall when we step off of something? This, this whole dynamic. So Sir Isaac Newton began to speculate about that. Now the laws of gravity have been in place from the beginning, right? God created this world that way. The gravity from the sun and the planets and the moon All of that was in place, but it wasn't until this man and others like him began to observe and they had the observation skills and they had the intellect to figure it out. God's mystery, in some ways, is like that, but in other ways, not. Gravity's always existed. It wasn't until someone was able to observe and figure it out that they discovered it. This mystery of the gospel has always existed. But we would never figure it out on our own. We would never, with observation or with intellect, get it. It comes by revelation. It comes by a gift. And Paul uses this word mystery to describe what only God knows, but like gravity, even though it's there, we can't figure it out. And if it weren't for him revealing it to us, we would never know it. That's the mystery that Paul's talking about. It's what the writer of Deuteronomy said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are eternal truths that we do not know. But God reveals them to them. That's going to be one of the glories of heaven, is that they will continue to be revealed throughout eternity. It won't be one moment, I get it. It'll be an eternity of getting it. Just discovering over and over. The depth and the riches and the wisdom of Christ. So these, this mystery then is known by revelation. So as I mentioned a minute ago, wait a minute. There, there's all, thing, all kinds of things in the Old Testament that should point us to it, right? I mean Isaiah chapter 49, he says it's, he's speaking to his son, okay, this amazing prophetic passage in Isaiah 49. He says it's too small a thing for you to be my servant To bring back the tribes of Jacob and bring those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you, he says, a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God, the expanse of God's design has always been beyond Israel, right? What was his promise to Abraham? In you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. So there's all of these pointers, all of these pictures that kind of point us to something else, that there was going to be something else to it, but They did not have, here's what I was thinking about, they don't have the puzzle box that has the picture on it. Right? How many of you work puzzles? And how many of you work them based on what you see in the picture on the box? When we go on vacation with all the family, first thing Susan and the girls do is they dump out this massive, we have to take a big folding table everywhere we go on vacation. And we do. And the purpose of that table is for the puzzles. And so they dump those puzzle pieces out. I've never seen them work that whole puzzle without that box being up on top. My average is about one piece a year. (laughs) I'll come by and I'll say, oh, yeah, that one goes right there. And they go, what are you doing? It is, I don't do puzzles. And we can't do this puzzle either. Because they didn't have the box. They didn't have the whole picture in the Old Testament. They didn't understand what it meant that God was going to crush the head of the serpent. They didn't understand what that crusher would look like. They didn't understand how it was that this servant that Isaiah talks about would also be the Lamb of God who lays down his life. That all of that puzzle did not come together. But if we follow the progression, even the progression that Paul talks about here in the book of Ephesians, it kind of unfolds for us. There's this this mystery of his will that he talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. There's this mystery that God's purposes from before the foundation of the world were being put together in Christ where he brings everything under his rule and reign. This mystery of Christ is what we see that Paul talks about even in Colossians 2. It's the hope of glory. It's the hope of all of these Old Testament saints that they put their hope in this one who would come. That's where their faith was placed, even though they didn't see it. This mystery that's revealed in chapter 2 is the mystery of Jews and Gentiles being brought together in Christ. I put this in my notes. Jews plus Gentiles plus Jesus equal one. That's God's man. And it's supernatural. It's amazing that Gentiles who were formerly dead in their sins, separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless, godless, now in Christ are brought near, made one, brought to life, and reconciled to God and to each other. That's the mystery. That they're fellow heirs and members of the same body. And And it's like... He says down in verse 8, these are the unsearchable riches of Christ that he's been called to preach. And it's almost like one of these time capsules. These archaeologists and all these people come to this place. They've known it's there, but they didn't really know what it was that was there. And they open up this box and there's all this treasure in there, all this insight, all this understanding. That's Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures, all the unsearchable riches of God. Are found in Jesus. That's this mystery. And it's, it comes from the God who planned and created all things. It tells us in verse 9. And that planning and that creation included how he was going to plan and purpose. A new creation of human beings. Redeemed and brought together in one. That's the mystery. That's the message that Paul is called to proclaim in this amazing way. And he's repeating the same thing that he said earlier in chapter 1. Making known the mystery of his will. That will that's been all of a sudden revealed in Jesus. God had this plan in eternity past. He had these promises and this preview that he made through his Old Testament prophets. And then God comes in person. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that mystery is unfolded right before our eyes in Jesus. It's, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of that. Paul, once again, even in chapter 11, squirrel, he goes chasing off on this Doxology, praising God for this amazing way that God's purposes and plans of election are being carried out. And here he sees that and he's just amazed by it. And, and look, as we work our way back up, we get then to Paul who is this prisoner of Christ Jesus. This Paul who is, who is this minister, it says in verse 7. Paul who is a, a, a steward, if you will, of, of what it is that God has given him and called him to. Now, Ephesians is written by Paul when he's in prison. And we'll see this when we get over to chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And we'd have to go back and take the time, and I'm not going to do that this morning, but go back and read in the book of Acts. Start in chapter 21. And see while Paul is in there in Jerusalem, that he's preaching there in the synagogue. And everything's going kind of okay. They don't like the whole message that they're hearing. But they're paying attention to it and it's not until Paul mentions the word Gentile and says that he is going to the Gentiles that everything falls apart. They start beating him, they want to kill him and he's arrested if you will and he as a Roman citizen appeals to Caesar and that whole unfolding there in chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Acts is the context for where we see Paul imprisoned here for Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. He is there for Jesus. God's sovereign plan and purpose for Paul is prison. When he was called there on the road to Damascus, I will show him what he must suffer for my sake. And so that's a part of God's purpose for Paul, is that he would be a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of others. There's always that that picture of God's on behalf of those that he's seeking to reach. He is a prisoner for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Now understand that Paul is unique in his calling. Paul is unique in his person. I think no one could really argue with the fact that it's second only to Jesus in his importance in the, in the New Testament. Because of what he writes and what he says. But that's a big gap, right? Paul is a man just like me and you. And while Paul is unique in his position, here we see in the book of Ephesians, I think he is a pattern that we can apply in our own lives. And so what can we apply from him? Well, he is a prisoner for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. That's probably not the case for any of us yet. Hold your breath. It may not be long. But he is also a steward with responsibilities. He says, I'm, I'm a steward of the grace that was given to me. And the idea here ties into the idea of what we see down in verse 7, that he is also a, a servant. If that's the word minister. Diakonos, all right, It's the word deacon. It's the word minister. Jesus said, I did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon or to minister or to serve. And so Paul is a servant within this household of God. He is also a steward with responsibilities. And that helps us understand that his role is to work within this house with things that he does not own, but that he is doing on behalf of the owner. He is a steward and a servant working in this household of God, working to him. Increase that house as he proclaims it. So he's called to this place. He's called to this responsibility. Notice that he says he is the least of all the saints in verse 8. It comes to mind what he said later on as he's given his testimony to Timothy that, that he was the chief of sinners. But but Paul is just like that church in Ephesus that he's writing to. He's one of the called out ones. He's one of the those set apart saints in Christ. That's, that's what you are. I've I don't even remember when you first said it, Paul Liggett, but I remember, I remember years ago, just you and I were having a conversation and you talked about that all, all these in this church are saints. Everyone in Christ is a saint. Alright? We don't do the repeating back and forth, but you could turn to your neighbor and say, you're a saint. And Paul is too. He's, he's, he's the least, though, of all the saints. There's humility there. And notice that Paul did not earn this calling. He did not earn this position. He did not earn this, this preaching that he's doing. He says in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul didn't earn this. It's a gift and he can't do it. He can't do it. He says it's by the working of his power. And there's that phrase that we find often in the New Testament that Paul uses. The idea of that, that effective working is, is, is the Greek word where we get the word energy, energia. And that power is the word where we get the word dynamite. And so what Paul is saying is, I didn't earn this job and I can't do it. It is the energy of God's power in me that calls me and propels me and helps me accomplish what it is that I'm being called to do. And so there's this picture that we have. And he's a sufferer. Look down at the very last verse there in the passage. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. A saint, a steward, a servant, called out, a specific message to those who have never heard, to the Gentiles, to those that are outside of the faith. I mean, this is a pattern of, of how God chooses to announce this mysterious plan that He has. This plan that He's had for all time. And as we just think about that, God has purposed from before the foundation of the world that He would have this new humanity bound together in Christ. With Christ alone as our commonality. That's been His plan. And the purpose of that was to display the majesty of His glory The majesty of his creativity for for the seen and unseen world to just stand back and be amazed at what it is that God has done. That's what he wants to do through Westwood. That's what he wants to do through his local church. Is for people to just go, wow, look at that. And it's folks just like you and me that he calls to be a part of that. One one commentator said, The masterpiece that is being painted now with missionaries and messengers of the church, we are the messy brushes that God uses to paint his painting. That's what we are in the hands of him. Think about it for just a second. And by way of application, I just want you to think about this. First, if you're outside of Christ today, if you've never trusted in Jesus, then I hope that you see in Paul, that you see in me, that you see in others, if if he can save that man, he can save anybody. He can can save anybody. Nobody's too far away. That's what Paul said later on in 1 Timothy. Here's the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. He says, I'm the least of the saints, I'm in the back of the line. But I'm in the front of the line when it comes to the sinners who need grace. So God can save you. And I encourage you to come to Jesus. God purposed before the foundation of the world that His Son would pay the debt that rebels and sinners owe. And it's a gift of grace. But you take out by faith and receive it. That's, that's the way you reach out your hands is just by faith and trusting in what God's Word says about you needing Jesus and Jesus coming to give you life and forgiveness and fullness. When we close today as we sing the last song, I'll be right here and if you want to come up or just after the service, I'll be out there at that table coming and, and, and we'll talk about that. As a believer, if we'll just grasp this vision, guys, and just commit to be a part of it, That God is building His kingdom. Jesus is building His church. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the only eternal, it's the only eternal thing that we can pour our lives into in this world. Nothing else will stand for all time except His church. Nothing else will stand except His church. So where are you pouring your life? Where is your effort going? What do your investments look like? It'll last forever, and because of that, nothing that we do here is unimportant. In that little book, Compelling Community, I was thinking about that in regard to this quote. Just think a minute about your own relationships. Okay, I said a minute ago that that these these relationships that display this manifold wisdom of God are relationships that can only be attributed to the gospel. Now it's. There, it's a gift to be able to fellowship and be together with people like us. I'm, I would never say otherwise. But, but listen to this quote from compelling, compelling Community. Relationships of similarity offer a level of understanding that is important and unique. But there should also be in relationships where you are friends only because you are Christians. Without any other worldly explanation so I want you to think for just a second about our relationships, church. Who is a friend? Who are you in a relationship with that has absolutely no foundation to it other than Christ? And I hopefully you, like me, are challenged by that, to develop that relationship. As a minister of reconciliation, to go out and seek it and see how God would use me in that relationship. That's where God's display of His glory and His manifold wisdom is going to be seen like nowhere else. Grasp that vision and be a part of it. And then finally, just meditate on the mystery of Christ, the riches that are in Christ. That it's all about Him. It's His life. It's His blood that accomplished it. It's His resurrection that gives the power that will see it through. And it's His love that is the foundation for all of it. We'll see that in the next part of this passage as we see this amazing prayer. Where Paul says, for this reason I bow. So we have access, church. Let's use it. Let's use it. Who is it that you might could begin to develop that relationship? Would you begin to pray for that person or those people? Would you actually make a list? Who is it, God, that you'd want me to take the Gospel to and begin to let you use me to speak into that person's life? Pray about that. See see who that person might be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your design and your purpose is that people would see your manifold wisdom and glory in and through your church. It's an amazing picture, God. I pray it would just be impressed upon our hearts today. Father, we pray for those who don't know Christ, that your Holy Spirit would draw them to you. Father, we pray for those who are in Christ, that we would be captivated by this vision, and it would compel us, Lord. It would compel us in the way we live and love and serve. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Ben, lead us as we close